that is actually not Herb Alpert and the Two Men of Brass. Uh, it is, in fact, Jonathan Richmond singing a song called Twilight in Boston. Jonathan Richmond himself uh, being both a native of Boston and also one of that city's uh, great champions. And one of the reasons that uh, I personally, uh, Carson Stooley, uh, care a great deal about that city and that region, having been born not very far away from uh, said city and having gone to high school uh, even closer to it. This is uh, Fangraphs Audio. As I, as I mentioned, I am Carson Sestouli. Of course, it is customary uh, every Monday or, or, or most Mondays to publish a uh, an episode of Fangraphs Audio featuring Fangraphs Managing Editor Dave Cameron. In the case of this particular Monday, we recorded uh, Cameron's usual appearance at about 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, but, but, of course, uh, after that and uh, before uh, before myself having recorded this portion of the show, the introductory portion, there was a horrible incident uh, at the finishing uh, the finish line of uh, the Boston Marathon. Uh, certainly, uh, two explosions <clears throat> having occurred near uh, near that finish line. Um, people definitely injured. Uh, it appears as though. Um, more than one person dead, and um, a lot of uh, questions being asked about precisely what has happened. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious that I'm not the person to answer those, uh, and nor is Dave Cameron, uh, nor uh, nor is anyone else at Fangraphs, uh, nor uh, nor obviously uh, would we would we attempt to do that. Uh, not particularly our place. <clears throat> Um, that said, um, I'll suggest it's <clears throat> it's uh, within the realm of taste. Despite uh, despite what's happened this afternoon, it's within the realm of taste to um, to talk about baseball, to uh, want to think about baseball. Uh, because uh, as a as a friend of mine would say, um, it's all part of the human adventure. The adventure is not a positive one all the time. Uh, and uh, one, uh, one point I would make is, uh, contrary to what certain voices will suggest, uh, for me at least, um, baseball is not a distraction. Uh, it is a, it's a reason uh, to be alive. It's something that makes uh, my life personally a lot better. Uh, talking and thinking about it. Um, I know that the point is sometimes made, especially around events uh, like the one that occurred in Boston. Uh, people will say, well, we have uh, sports to distract us. I would uh, I'd say it's a legitimate thought, uh, but I would say it's also one that uh, does not apply to everyone. I would say for me personally, uh, I would assume for some listeners, it's um, something about which I you know, get quite excited, and which allows for something like pure thought, um, a place where I can experiment with certain ideas and then apply them uh, to other uh, situations in my life which are probably more complex. 
In any case, that's <clears throat> you, uh, you don't need to hear me talk more, uh, much more about that. But uh, let me do uh, say uh, that uh, this is Fangraphs Audio. What you're about to hear is a conversation uh, I had earlier with Dave Cameron about um, primarily about Adam Dunn <laughs> and uh, him changing his offensive approach. Also, uh, hit by pitches is a skill, uh, particularly concerning Carlos Quentin and his episode before the weekend, uh, maybe um, I guess it was Friday, with uh, with Zach Ranke. Uh, also, brief discussions of Cincinnati Reds left-hander, left-handed prospect Tony Singrani, who will be starting on Thursday. Uh, also, uh, uh, also brief invocation of Evan Gaddis, uh, who is probably playing too well. Uh, to see the minor leagues at least anytime soon. Fangraphs Audio featuring managing editor Dave Cameron, the vocal stylings of Jonathan Richmond, uh, and beginning right now. I know that some of our some of our uh, my colleagues at the site they could be difficult to manage. Yeah, indeed, <laughs> indeed. Uh, I, d- I have noticed that well, like those days when I take over, and it even happens at Knockrafts a little bit. But when you're asked to, it's it's not just about. Um, it could even be a, like a, the tightest run ship. But when people are coming to you with questions, you have to pause and answer them. And it's 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 not just the amount of time you are answering. It's also that there's like a transition time. It's hard to go back to whatever you were working on. Right, yeah. I mean, I, I try and, like, segment my time a little bit. So, you know, it's not that I, you know, like when I was doing my done piece this morning, I didn't check my email. I just, you know, wrote my piece. And then I, you know, oh, I have 10 emails to answer. Right. So, there's you know, a, but try I think, and, that's a real, like, cognitive um, thing that's been uh, studied, I think, right? Is this sort of like transition time between events and maybe right? And responding to people requires, I assume, a slightly different part of your brain than discussing Adam Dunn's um, Adam Dunn's plate discipline. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, it's definitely two different skills. And uh, I was talking with, uh, I don't remember who I was talking with, someone who used to be a, um, a managing editor somewhere. I honestly don't remember who it was, but they were noting how difficult it is to both write and kind of uh, critique and edit and, and offer feedback to other writers and do those things simultaneously. They're, they're, it's not necessarily two things that seamlessly go hand in hand. Right. Even though you, you, might, um, you might utilize similar skills in both, like obviously working with English and in your case, like trying to write. So uh, the site is constantly trying to provide baseball analysis of and that, right. that can mean a lot of different things. So you wanted to I guess, be uh, to fall within the spirit of the site. Right. And, uh, you know, I think baseball analysis means different things to different people. I mean, you know, we have guys on staff who see things pretty differently than others. And, you know, so trying to make sure that their unique takes and opinions are still heard while also making sure that they're not just, you know, saying things that we don't want to publish. It's, uh, it can be a little fine line sometimes. I would say that at Fangraphs, generally speaking, uh, we have a long editorial leash. 
Agreed. Yes. That I think it's, beca- it's become shorter. I think, uh, you know, in the last year or two, we've probably tightened it a little bit. It used to be longer than it is now. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, listen, uh, we, we invoked that done piece. Let's start there. Uh, that's the thing you wrote for today. Uh, I, I'm going to summarize it poorly, and then what you'll do is you will um, summarize it better. You'll take my summary and, tell, and you will fill it in. Um, um, does that sound like a good idea? I mean, it doesn't sound efficient, but it's what we're going to do. No, it sounds like with the like BASF, like the company that used to run commercials, like we don't make duct tape, we make duct tape better. You know, was I, that I that or was that like, or was that 3M? One of those. Okay. Some, some engineering company that was always like, we don't make anything, we just improve it all. Right, well, I guess gonna, I'm going to be the you're gonna duct do that. tape improver. Uh, well, I'll do the very. I'll I'll make it brief at the very least. Adam Dunn uh, has forever had this one approach, right, which is yeah. uh, essentially entirely rooted in three true outcomes. He, yeah. He's going to strike out a lot. That's obvious, but he's also going to have a lot of home runs and walk. And Adam Dunn has been Adam Dunn for as many years as he's been in the league. He's had that exact approach. Um, if he were a slightly better defender, he would probably be – I mean, he would definitely be an overall better player. Uh, but his offensive – game whatever it's uh you know generally speaking it's been good enough for him to be at least an average first baseman or corner outfielder for reasons that aren't entirely clear to me and about which i just learned today via your piece he uh, decided that he was going to take a different approach into the season and that he would be more aggressive early on in counts and what it appears has happened at least a week and a half whatever into baseball is this or maybe two weeks now this has not been ideal for him uh end summary Right. So basically everything you said is true, and improving upon it is actually difficult. That was that was quite a good job. Oh, yeah. They, well, I read uh, your, A, I read your piece. B, right. uh, spent at least 30 seconds thinking about it. So I figure I'd give you that much. <laughs> well done. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think my guess would be this is uh, an instruction that has come to him. It wasn't uh, his idea necessarily. I think, you know, in the article that I linked to, uh, you know, several of the Chicago beat writers wrote about this in spring training. And, you know, Dunn's comments uh, don't say that, you know, Jeff Manto or Robin Ventura told me I have to do this. But, it, you know, I think that opening comment where he talks about how this is going to be a difficult transition for him and he's going to try and, you know, he does think that he's been successful drawing walks and, and working counts and he doesn't want to lose those things shows that maybe this was a, a suggestion to him rather than a genesis of Adam Dunn thinking, oh, man, I really need to uh, improve on some flaws in my game. I think, you know, anytime you're, t- you're dealing with a guy in his mid-30s and you're trying to tweak a pretty major part of his overall game and he's maybe not on board, and then, you know, I think Dunn's probably put in the work and he's, he's trying. But, you know, if this isn't something that he it was his idea and that he's really convinced of, is an improvement, I think that's a little dangerous. I think that's what we're seeing here is uh, it seems like, it, you know, I mean, based on the data we have, uh, Dunn seems to be a little bit, you know, in between, I guess is the word the baseball guys like to use, where he's, Swinging at pitches early in counts, getting behind in counts because he doesn't have a great contact rate, so he's ending up in 01, 02 counts that he's in the mount, and then he's chasing him. Um, you know, it looks like he's basically keyed on the, the million elevated part of the strike zone, which is, you know, certainly a power zone for left handed hitters, but he's swinging at anything in that zone. And I think, you know, for me, the most telling quote that he gave in spring training is that he used to be essentially a really good guess hitter, where he would get himself into 3 0, 3 1, 2 0, 2 1 counts and say, I know that this guy throws 70% change-ups. I'm going to sit change-up here, where now he's not keying off a specific pitch type from a specific pitcher anymore. He's just keying off location. And, you know, this is a pretty drastic change in approach for a guy who has a career 124 WRC plus and 7,000 plate appearances. 
And, you know, I mean, 40, 46 plate appearances is not a huge sample, but I, I don't really see a compelling reason for them to continue with this experiment. Well, so let's look at this. Let, let's try and find uh, – let's give the, the White Sox the benefit of the doubt for a moment. Um, we, we know that uh, – um, I mean, we know that, for example, Rick Hahn is smart. Uh, Kenny Williams is yep. still around. I mean, apart from what you think of um, of his player transactions, we know that the White Sox have won a lot of games. Um, we know that, we know that in particular that uh, an, uh, at least one member uh, in in Don, Coop, Don Cooper, Don Cooper, Don Cooper, Don Cooper, yeah. Don Cooper, the pitching coach is like appears to be in a, a, a elite so far as uh, that position is concerned, um, and we know that that. It, uh, at the end of the day, the club has won a lot of games, and more games, it seems, every year than we assume they're going to. Um, so giving the White Sox the benefit of the doubt, what would you see as their thought process being for why this would be a good time for Adam Dunn to make a change like this? Yeah, I think one thing that we can maybe separate out from the fact that the overall the White Sox have been a good organization historically, uh, and I think that's true. I mean, I think they've, uh, you know, they've won more than we've expected. They've done a good job with pitching. Uh, you know, I think Rick Hahn is uh, a good GM who, who certainly understands the same numbers that we're writing about. You know, this, and none of this is going to be news to him. Uh, but I do think that historically we can look and see that the White Sox under the Kenny Williams regime. And Kenny Williams is still in place, even though Rick Hahn's the GM. Williams still has significant input in Chicago, uh, you know, and probably had a lot of input in hiring uh, Robin Ventura as manager. We can see that this organization doesn't place a super high emphasis on the on base on balls. I mean, you know, besides the fact that they acquired Adam Dunn to begin with, um, to kind of litter their lineup with, you know, aggressive, full-power guys, Alex Rios, um, A.J. Pierzynski, uh, Paul Canerco is not a guy who's historically walked a lot, even though he's a big hitter. Diane Viciedo, Alexei Ramirez. Uh, you know, I think w- what we see is that the kind of the classic hitter skill set of the White Sox is, is much more aggressive than passive. And Dunn was kind of the exception to that. And it seems like, you know, <laughs> they are maybe trying to make Dunn a little bit more uh, of a White Sox type of hitter than he has historically been. Um, so I think that, you know, we can say that the White Sox are a good organization, while also noting that they may have a specific bias towards more aggressive types of hitters, and, and Dunn might not fit their uh, preference for, you know, style of, of offensive approach. And, you know, maybe they think that overall uh, he's too passive. I mean, there's certainly critiques of some hitters. Uh, you know, Jason Hayward has had this thing against him, Shinsu, too. But, you know, some of the hitters, even Joey Votto, has been told to, you know, swing the bat more often. Um, you know, there are guys in baseball who don't value the walks as much as they do hits, home runs, you know, RBIs, those kinds of things. It, you know, for Dunn to hit 230, 240 and be a productive hitter flies in the face of what some people think. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's people in the White Sox organization who would rather have Adam Dunn hit 270 with 50 walks than hit 250 with 100 walks. Now, we know that on average a, a batter's approach will will change or his skill set will slightly change over the course of his career, and and I'm thinking of in particular of a great uh, great work Bill Petty did on this that, show, that shows the aging curves with different skills. Generally speaking, contact rates uh, uh, drop as a, as a player gets older. Uh, generally speaking, uh, like things like O swing, I think also drop um, as a, as a hitter gets older. They, they tend to it, it appears as that you get a better sense of the strike zone, also a better sense of what they can hit. Um, there's sort of a self knowledge there. Power. Power tends to um, last longer than speed does, or it develops later and also will decline later uh, than speed. Um, Now, here's a question, though. Having established that or knowing that's the case, 
Can you think of any instances in which a player, and not like a rookie, because you say, well, if Dunn were, you know, if he were like a 22-year-old and was having problems with one approach, I could see that. Can you think of any instances in which a player has actually, like, legitimately changed his approach, you know, from age 27 on? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't remember exactly when Sammy Sosa made his major transformation. It might have been around 27. He's one guy that sticks out that, you know, the young player, he was a free swing hack, swung at everything, um, showed no real determinant for the strike zone. Then he started getting some non-natural assistance, and mm-hmm. he got a little larger and uh, started hitting home runs, and then, you know, pitchers started being a little more selective, and he figured out that if he doesn't swing at those pitches out of the strike zone, he'd get more fastballs to hit 600 feet. Uh, and Sosa became a really high walk guy uh, later in his career. Now, you know, there are extenuating circumstances with Sammy Sosa, but I think, you know, it, we, it's unlikely that uh, whatever substances he might have taken helped his batting eye. Uh, I think that there was probably some realistic um, progression of, of late discipline uh, that may have come along with the power, but, um, you know, he, he began, to un- began to understand that he didn't need to swing at everything as much as he used to, and it became a much better hitter for it. So there are... Um, instances, I think, of, of guys learning the strike zone as they get older. I think there are many fewer examples. I actually asked this on our internal group, and Bill Petty responded with a list of uh, guys who've kind of done what Adam Dunn is uh, setting out to do, of going the other direction. You don't see that very often. This is pretty rare where a guy who's been selective just suddenly gets much less selective and becomes much more aggressive. It, it's not that it never happens, but it to this magnitude, where the swing percentage increases, you know, 10%, which is what Adam does that right now, that's basically unheard of. We don't see guys who have had success in the big leagues over long periods of time with a patient approach one day just decide, you know what, walks are stupid. I'm not going to take them anymore. Well, and, and we talk about uh, old player skills, and walking is one of those skills, right? So generally speaking, we would expect walk rates to increase as a player get older. Is that? I mean, is that fair? Yeah. Absolutely. I think, you know, the, uh, the specific aging curves show that, you know, uh, plate discipline improves, walk rate improves. These are things that guys get better at with experience. And, you know, you can potentially argue that maybe they're just, now that they're veterans, they're getting more calls from umpires, you know, whether it's a learning thing, whether it's a, uh, an understanding that they don't have the bat speed that they used to, so they just, you know, adjust. I mean, we don't exactly know how all these skills work together to, to produce the different rates, but we do have a general sense that as players get older, uh, they fling less and they walk more. Adam doesn't point the other direction. Now, um, it, uh, we could see a pretty interesting thing when we look at um, offensive production by count, right? And, um, you know, you see it in, you know, it makes sense in 3 in 1 counts, 2 uh, 1 counts, batters are pretty good. Uh, in 0 1 counts and 0 2 counts, uh, batters are not as good, right? Now, typically speaking, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, uh, first pitch. The first, uh, the line for first pitches is uh, better than league average. Um, yeah. So isn't that an ar- is that an argument, or why isn't it an argument for every pitcher uh, to have an aggressive approach on the first pitch? The every hitter, you mean? Yeah. So I think that this is where the concept of selection bias becomes extremely important because people do point to this, uh, you know, fairly regularly, uh, at least on Twitter. I see that a decent amount where you say. You know, some beat writer will quote that a guy is hitting 450 on first pitches, and then everyone says, well, you should just swing at the first pitch more often. Uh, but essentially, this is an artifact of, of what's called selection bias. He's already choosing to swing at the pitches that he's most likely to get a hit on, um, so that's why his average is high. If he starts swinging at worse pitches, that average will come down. I think another way to think of it is like with base dealing. So say you have a guy who, you know, has an 85% success rate, 
base dealer and steals 40 bases, if he tries to then steal 80 bases, those next 40 attempts are going to be significantly uh, higher risk and, and lower probability of success than the first 40 because we've already selected the 40 best chances for him to run, and adding 40 new chances are just going to be, you know, maybe a 60, 65% chance of likelihood uh, or chance of success. Um, same thing with swinging at the first pitch. If you're already selecting for, I'm only going to swing at the first pitch if it's a meatball down the middle, and you do really well on meatballs down the middle, swinging at a pitch at your eyes on the first pitch isn't going to have the same results because that wasn't selected for in the first pitch swinging. So I think when you look at a line on, you know, something like a 0-0 count, say, oh, man, Adam Dunst has actually been really good when he's swung at the first pitches. That's because he was insanely selective. So uh, he would only swing at the first pitch when it was right down the middle. Just telling him to swing at all first pitches isn't going to breed the same success. So do you think that if you were, I mean, previous to this season, if you were to look at all the instances in which Adam Dunn had swung at the first pitch, do you think that, like, you know, and you were to, to look at a, you know, a pitch FX map of those, would you guess that they would all be pretty much in, in the same place, certainly in the strike zone, certainly places where Adam Dunn felt like he could do some damage? Yeah, and I mean, you know, there would certainly be some variation because there are certain, you know, times when it's more advantageous to swing uh, and put the ball in play than draw a walk. You know, if there's a runner at third, less than two outs in the tie game, you know, you want to drive that runner in more than you want to take first base. And so, um, you know, there'd be some variation. But overall, I think we would see a pretty significant uh, centered strike zone where Dunn was only going to swing at pitches that he thought he could crush. Uh, and now, if you look at his zero zero heat map, uh, he's swinging at more pitches. They're still in the strike zone. He's not necessarily chasing pitches in his eyes. He's not, you know, Josh Hamilton or something. But he's uh, swinging at pitches on the outer half. Uh, and, you know, I think I showed in the, the post, he's swinging at every single pitch he's been throwing middle in, whether it's fastball, slider, changeup, curveball, whatever it is, uh, you can throw middle in and know right now that Adam Dunn was going to swing at it. Where, you know, if it was a borderline middle in pitch before, maybe he would have taken that pitch. The next one's just middle middle and he would have hit it to the moon. He's not getting that middle middle pitch anymore because now he's going after middle in. Uh, I would like at this point in the episode, um, uh, Cameron, I would like to deploy what I call a solid gold transition. Uh, It's seamless in nature because what we're talking about now are offensive skills that are native to certain batters. Yeah. what I would like to invoke is another sort of offensive skill that's native to a batter, in, in particular one batter, and that is the hit-by-pitch skill. What do you think about this transition? Do you feel what's happening right now, Cameron? I, I do feel like I, I think Carlos Quentin played for the White Sox. I think that's where you're going. I think there could have been a more seamless transition in talking about, you know, White Sox. Former players. White Sox teammate. Yeah, I think – but what my point is I think that's a little predictable. This is, a, this is an outside-of-the-box transition. And outside of the box, uh, by the way, um, outside of the box, outside of the strike zone, are not where all of uh, Carlos Quentin's hit-by-pitches have occurred. Um, no. Some right. of them have occurred actually in the strike zone. In the box, yeah. yeah. So obviously it's uh, um, it's clear why we're talking about this. Carlos Quentin uh, charged the man after getting hit by Zach Greinke on a pitch that – on a pitch – now you, had, uh, you, you addressed this in, in your piece. The, the pitch with, uh, with which Zach Greinke hit Carlos Quentin um, – uh, obviously, Carlos Quentin was hit by it. What percentage of other batters do you think would have been hit by that hit by that pitch? A very, very low amount. When I, when I asked Jeff and Ron to query it, I, I sh- probably should have changed the coordinates a little bit to account for that specific pitch. That might have been interesting. But basically, I just looked at the negative one, which is kind of the inside of the strike zone, um, to negative 1.5 foot range. Um, to give us like a six-inch wide kind of spectrum of where Carlos Quentin gets hit or how often Carlos Quentin gets hit. 
and the, the pitch that Granky hit him with it was just barely to the left of that line. So um, can't say for sure that the numbers apply exactly, but, it, you know, Carlos Clinton's rate of getting hit by pitches that were just a little bit inside, 20 times higher than the major league average. So I think, uh, you know, it, I think the exact number that, that Zimmerman gave us was 0.02% of all pitches in that range turn into hit-by-pitches. Well, two every 10,000 pitches. Uh, basically, the pitch from Granke was on the border of that range, so maybe it's slightly higher because it's, you know, not including pitches right off the plate, but, you know, this is a this was a pitch that was not so far inside that, you know, a great majority of major league hitters wouldn't have been easily able to dodge it. Uh, Quentin was hit by this pitch because he was Carlos Quentin, not because that cranky was throwing at it. Now, it, it needs to be said that uh, hit-by-pitch skill is a thing that exists. I'm not yeah. sure what the variation is, if it's the same as, like, uh, you know, for a pitcher's capacity to strike to strike batters out or, you know, to get swings and misses. That's something that becomes stable pretty quickly in, you know, it is you know applies to certain pitchers. Is the sort of range of hit by pitch skill is it is it similar to something like strikeouts or uh, or a bit, you know a batter's ability to take walks or something like that? Yeah, I think we see it have a really strong year to year correlation. Once we establish that a guy you know like Quentin or Chase Utley or one of these guys who's going to get hit a significant number of times, Craig Biggio, the guys who have a reputation for getting hit 15, 20 times a year, uh, for them their correlation is quite high. You know, with other guys, you'll see it bounce around a little bit more simply because the, the magnitude that we're dealing with is really small. So you could have a guy get hit three times by accident one year and zero times the next year uh, just because we're only dealing with, you know, a, an N of three, essentially. So, But for guys where it's a regular part of their game, like Carlos Clinton, uh, the the predictability of, of hit-by-pitch rates is quite high because this is something that they uh, do on purpose. Now, I don't know, what is your sort of viewpoint? This is uh, asking more for your opinion, I guess, um, than, than hardcore analysis. But uh, do you sense that it's a, it's, a, it's a question of playing the rules, right? And which is something that, you know, exists in a game, but maybe is not necessarily in the spirit of the game. Uh, or, or for you, is it a sense of, of a player recognizing that he might develop a skill, a way to, to uh, take an impact from a ball in a way that is uh, – you know, gets him to first base, and here he is helping his team. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, it's not necessarily a question of the spirit of the law because the the rule actually says that the batter must make an attempt to get out of the way. Uh, Carlos Quentin does not really make much of an attempt to get out of the way. He might make an attempt to move and to minimize the amount of physical damage the ball is going to do to him, but he does not make an attempt, uh, you know, whether in the cranky pitch or just in general, to not get hit by pitches. I think, you know, the rule book it was pretty clear on the fact that the hitter needs to make some attempt if they're going to be rewarded first base. Umpires don't enforce that part of the rule at all. Generally, if the ball hits you, regardless of what you do, you get first base. I would like to see uh, umpires start enforcing the intent. Maybe it's difficult from their position where they're trying to watch the strike zone. I can imagine it's tough to keep an eye on the strike zone and also see the amount of uh, effort that a a player's involved in. So maybe this should be the third base umpire or the second base umpire, someone uh, who maybe has a better vantage point, um, determining whether the player actually made any kind of effort to get out of the way. Uh, we've seen a decent number of times where guys like Quentin will just, you know, hang their arms over the, the upper inside corner of the strike zone, let it hit them in the forearm, uh, trot down to first base, and if the if pitch hadn't hit them, it might have been called a strike. To me, that's bupkis. <laughs> oh, watch out, people. <laughs> now, uh, in the past week, Fangraphs writers, uh, two different Fangraphs writers, have written pleas 
P L E A S, plural of plea. They've written pleas of. They were different in and of themselves, but they're both relevant to Carlos Quentin. One of them was actually by David Temple at Knockoffs. It was a plea directly to Carlos Quentin that occurred, I think, what, a day or two before this? The, the, the day before, yeah. yeah uh, Nostradamusin. Nostradamian? I don't, I don't know what the, the term is there. It was quite... quite uh, it was timely. Uh, yeah, that's a better word. Right. David Temple, uh, a plea to Carlos Quinn, get out of the way. A couple, uh, There were some expletives in and around the piece. But generally speaking, get out of the way. Uh, this is not something that Carlos Quinn uh, appears to, to have adopted at all, this point of view. Do, do we sense right. that, that Carlos Quinn will adopt this point of view going forward or, not, or, or likely not? I doubt it. I mean, Carlos Quinn's been doing this for years. This is part of his game. I think he... Uh, my guess is that hitters like Quentin aren't necessarily setting out thinking like, oh, if I add 20 hit by pitches, it will increase my on base percentage. I think Quentin likes the plate coverage he gets from just sitting on top of the plate. Uh, it allows him to drive pitches on the outer half better. It allows him to cover pitches he might not be able to get to otherwise. Uh, you know, the closer you are to the plate, uh, the harder it is for a pitcher to just pound you away on the, the outer half of the strike zone. Um, so my guess is that Clinton will take the trade off, and say, I would rather have more plate coverage in exchange for a little bit of physical pain. Um, you know, if if the rule book was actually enforced and uh, Clinton didn't get a free base every time he got plunked on a pitch that was a you know two or three inches inside, maybe that would force him to adjust. Right, and and then what you're uh, invoking there um, was addressed by uh, was addressed by Jeff Sullivan last week. Uh, he wrote in a piece called "A Gentle Plea." For, he wrote a, a piece called "A Gentle Plea for Less Selective Rule Enforcement." Uh, certainly, one of these uh, this resolved around largely um, an instance in which uh, Jeff Baker, who I guess is now on the Texas Rangers, uh, I mean, it appears that this is the case. There's photographic evidence to that effect. Um, uh, I think Jeff Baker was called for interference. Yes, when he um, he slid wide of second base in an attempt to disrupt. Uh, Yunel Escobar, and I guess didn't just slide wide of the bag. He also reached out with his left hand to strike him. Yeah, I think a more accurate description might be he slid to the left of right field. <laughs> yeah. Well, in any case, it, in any case, it's not it's not uncommon for uh, for a um, a runner to slide into second within an arm's reach of, of the bag, but also with an intention of making the play more difficult for whichever player, be it the second baseman or shortstop. Uh, to make it more difficult for him to complete the play. Right. Um, we see probably less often we see this, uh, we see it called uh, that a player, that a runner, that same runner is called for interference. Uh, there are probably instances in which uh, the, the runner could be called for interference, but is not. Right. Um, now, this also seems to be the case with uh, hit by pitches. Uh, in that piece, um, in that piece, uh, there's there's an instance in which Prince Fielder just drops his uh, meaty gentleman's tricep over the over home plate, uh, or right. at least near home plate, and uh, is is called for um, is not called for interference or, or for whatever intentional you're getting hit intentionally. He just goes to first base. This is a thing that certainly at least I guess what four times was it? Uh, Carlos Quentin could have been called for, but so far as I know, it hasn't. Right. Um, now. Uh, is this, is this something like how would this be called, or is it just is it kind of not really worth? Is there is there not, like is the incentive for the umpire to call it uh, pretty minimal just because of of the like the anxiety and frustration it would cause for everyone involved? Whereas as long as it's a borderline or slightly less than borderline case, the umpire can just be like, yeah, take your base. 
Yeah, I think part, I think there's a couple things at play. One is, you know, kind of the unwritten rules of baseball are kind of working here where, you know, um, it's considered a good, clean, hard play to break up a double play. Like, players get a lot of credit from TV announcers and their fellow players and uh, the, the media and the coaching staff for going in hard at second base and preventing a double play with an aggressive slide. This is considered a, a good hustle play, uh, something that is, you know, uh, rewarded by teams. Um, so I think as long as this is a play that major league players all put a value on and the coaches put a value on, umpires are going to be, um, you know, reticent to take that away from them and say, hey, we're going to take this part out of baseball, even though all of you think this is a play that you uh, place a value on, we're going to remove that from you. I think that, that, the, that would be an unpopular decision if the umpires just started unilaterally taking away the hard slide at second base or the breakup slide at second base. Uh, so I think this is going to have to come from above the umpires' heads where it would be a, uh, essentially a rule change by Major League Baseball to say, uh, you know, if you initiate contact, for instance, uh, with any defensive player, you're out. Um, and I think, you know, this is probably something that Major League Baseball could do when they're addressing the uh, collisions at home plate. I think, you know, this is essentially the same idea um, if a base runner intentionally initiates contact with a defender, uh, I think the sport probably shouldn't want them to do that, really at any base. You know, the catcher is the most prone because of the position he's in when he's trying to receive the ball. Um, but, you know, we, the middle infielders are also prone to getting spiked or getting, um, you know, taking a, a shoulder to the knee. I think we saw Marcos Scudero in the playoffs last year getting upended by Matt Holliday. I think, you know, major league players are in vulnerable positions when they're trying to field. And I think that there's probably a decent case for Major League Baseball to just amend the rules to rather than saying, you know, you have to be within X number of feet of the base, just to say if you initiate contact with the defender, you're out. And maybe so is the batter who would give multiple outs if you're trying to break up a double play instead of just giving them the out of second base, both runners are out. I think that there's um, something for the league to do here to just remove the incentive from base runners to initiate contact with defenders. Okay. That, now, that would be um, – that seems like it would be – I don't know a sweeping change, but it would it would be pretty dramatic. Um, I because I, I don't I can't really think of anything uh, like that that's been passed, or, or there's even really been much talk about it, except in those instances like when Buster Posey was injured, uh, you know, uh, where someone actually does, or maybe when Justin Morneau got hit. Of course, that's Justin Morneau's fault because uh, right. he was he was sliding into into the better. But it doesn't seem like there have been a lot of calls for this necessarily. But but you still think it would. Uh, what improve the game because if players are going to get hurt anyway, let's not create more instances in which they're going to be hurt. Yeah, I mean, I think there is some uh, you know push for this at home plate, and so while I think this discussion is going on about protecting catchers and making sure that we're not uh, putting players' health and careers in, on the line for no reason, I mean, baseball is not a contact sport, and there's um, you know specific rules preventing that you can't just like tackle them, you know the second baseman as he's trying to make a play. Uh, you know, it's illegal. So there's no real reason why there's um, should be certain plays in the field where it's okay to run over a player or to initiate hard contact with a player in order to stop them from being able to defend the play when it's illegal at every other point in the game. I think, you know, Major League Baseball can essentially just clarify uh, and say, you know, base runners initiating contact is no longer legal, whether that's a home plate, second base, first base, wherever. If the base runner initiates contact with the, with the batter, we're not going to reward them for it. Okay, uh, uh, you you have nearly um, fulfilled your obligations to Fangraphs Audio for the week. I, I'm sure you're excited about that. I just want to ask you uh, two more quick questions uh, um, about uh, what uh, I don't know how many games we're in. Fifteen games now, 12, 12, 15 games in at this point. 
Uh, yeah, 12, like 11, 12, whatever. <clears throat> um, Evan Gaddis uh, has played a lot for the Atlanta Braves, uh, the 11 and 1 Atlanta Braves, and uh, as of now, looks, you know, with the exception of Justin Upton, has probably been the best hitter on that team. Uh, he's played mostly catcher. I think he's played. He had at least one start at first base. I saw him play. Maybe maybe he's had more. Um, Evan Gaddis' story is excellent, but more than that, he's he's. I mean, he he's not doing anything that's that much different. I mean, he's not going to sustain this home run rate probably, but his offensive performance. He's got a Babbitt below three hundred, and yet he's still. I mean, he's hitting really well. Yeah. He's making this, it seems, a tough decision for the Braves for when Brian McCann comes back because McCann's going to still be recovering from injury and was not super last year, even though at some level he's considered, you know, the heart of the franchise or, you know, has been. He's probably one of the longest tenured players on that team. Uh, what, what do you envision uh, coming of this, um, uh, coming of this situation when McCann finally does return? Well, I don't think there's any chance they send Gattis back to the minors. I mean, he's kept himself on the roster, uh, and he'll almost certainly stay on the roster after McCann returns. My guess would be, uh, depending on how McCann's rehab goes, they might go with three catchers for a little while, um, You know, whether that's dropping down a pitcher and you know trying to use their off days to maybe skip the fifth starter in order to you know get some extra bullpen work there or just um, maybe trying to make it work with a 11-man pitching staff. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if they went with three catchers for a little while. They don't think they want to dump Gerald Laird as kind of a veteran backup catch-and-throw guy that every manager in baseball loves. Um, but, I, you know, I, I don't think McCann's going to be ready to step back into an everyday job. I don't think they're going to force him into it, especially when they have a decent alternative. Uh, so I wouldn't be too surprised if Gaddis kept catching even after McCann returned on a you know, couple times a week basis and they used him as a pinch hitter. And if McCann, you know, performed as poorly as he did last year, uh, you know, Gaddis could see some, see some playing time if McCann performs well. And if the Brian McCann hold, all of a sudden, then you're probably Gaddis starting to get reps either at first base or in the outfield. Uh, he'll DH in early games. So I think they'll, they'll find a way to keep him in the major league. Uh, you know, in the National League, you do need a pinch hitter basically every night. And so having a guy like Gaddis around, uh, even if that was his only role, maybe you, you think that that's not great for any young player's development, but he's 26 years old. He doesn't have a lot of developing left to do. Um, so I think the Braves will find a way to keep Gaddis. Uh, might not be able to keep him in the lineup every day, but they can keep him on the team and, and playing a, a decent role for the team going forward. Now, you, you said that they're not going to send him down. I, I would submit that there's that there's something that could happen. Like if he got zero hits between now and when McCann got called back, I think he would be sent down. What do you think is the sort of threshold that would be required? Like a, where, what would what would be required for him to be sent down? Uh, I mean, I think it depends on when McCann comes back. I, mean, I haven't heard an exact date on when he's going to come back. But then let's just say that McCann returns May 1st, right? So that gives Gattis a couple more weeks. Uh, you know, he's not playing every day at this point. So, so you know, as a catcher, say he's going to play five games a week over the next two weeks, so it's ten games. I mean, you know, if he goes 0 for 30, then sure, he'll, he'll go back down. But I think, you know, given his hot start, even if he goes, you know, 6 for 30 or 7 for 30 or something, his numbers are still going to be too good especially if, you know, a few of those six or seven hits are home runs or extra base hits or come in a clutch situation or something. Uh, the Braves aren't going to look at it and say, oh, man, you know, he's scuffled over the last ten games. We're going to ignore what he did the first two weeks. Uh, especially, you know, he killed the ball in spring training. He's done nothing but hit the minors. And the rest of their bench is pretty terrible. I think if you look at the, the backups the Braves have in terms of pinch hitting at least, um, you know, you don't really want to send Reed Johnson to the plate to pinch hit against a right-hander. Uh, you know, Ramiro Pena is not an offensive threat. Uh, Gerald Laird's not a guy that you want to send up there to hit. I think they, they kind of need a guy who's just a, a bat-only player on the bench in order to pitch hit once a day. 
Uh, okay, so so that's the conversation about Evan Gass. Thank you for that. Uh, sec- and then uh, lastly, uh, with regard to um, the Reds, uh, Johnny Cueto, I guess, has been placed on the disabled list. Uh, remains to be seen how long he'll be out. Uh, Tony Singrani uh, will be uh, will be starting for the Reds on Thursday. J.D. Sussman uh, had the opportunity to see him, I, th- I believe, recently. And uh, and obviously, just looking at the numbers, I mean, Singrani, he struck out like. He still got like 15 of 18 batters he faced in his first game in the minors, yeah. which regardless of what you're doing, that's that's a really good rate. Um, yeah. Uh, when you strike out all the batters, that's a good thing to be doing. You're probably doing well. Um, the weird thing is now, as Sussman notes, uh, he, it appears that Singrani's added a curveball, but he was still – he was striking out a lot of batters last year with basically just a fastball. And I may yeah. have asked you this before. Maybe it was one of our other prospect guys, but I'm still curious because I have not got a satisfactory answer have you ever seen anyone strike out so many people with just a fastball? Uh, not, not, yeah, not at this level. I mean, I think we've seen minor league deception guys before, but they've usually had a pretty good changeup, or uh, you know, not necessarily uh, relied on just their fastball to this extreme level. I think usually when we talk about deception minor league pitchers who don't have huge stuff, the names that get invoked are guys like John Stevens or just Merrill Pettit or some of the guys who haven't made it all that well. Um, but I think, you know, it, it'd be interesting to look at um, kind of relief pitchers who specialize with like, so There are relievers who come up and, and, you know, kind of blow guys away with chest fastball. And we look at Sean Doolittle last year, Jake McGee, um, guys who succeeded throwing 70, 80% fastballs out of the bullpen, uh, whether that can translate into the rotation. I mean, McGee was kind of a failed starting prospect before he moved into the bullpen. Um, maybe it can't, but I, I do think that we see that over short periods of time, shorter outings, you can be fastball only at the major league level and get guys out. I wonder if the reason that we haven't seen starting pitchers uh, kind of in this mold is because of kind of the the pre-existing idea that you need multiple off-speed pitches in order to attack uh, off-handed hitters. And I think you know there's a lot of validity to those ideas. Uh, I do think it'll be interesting to see what Singrani can do if he's given us an extended look and has to pitch six, seven innings and face guys multiple times a game and face, you know, a, a lot of opposite-handed hitters, um, if the fastball works against opposite-handed hitters, and there are examples of where it can. I mean, you know, Mariano Rivera's cutter, well, basically everybody's cutter, but Rivera's been better against lefties in his career than against righties. There are fastballs that, that don't have big platoon flips. Whether Singrani has one of those, and that's going to be enough to get him through major league lineups, I don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it deserves to be said. He he pitched in the majors. He faced uh, 22 batters last year, and he struck out 40 percent of them. So, and using almost exclusively the fastball then. So it's not like in in, in half those. Um, it was about half and half lefty righty. Um, right. It that's a limited sample, but it's a promising sample, and uh, it, it's just it's just weird. It's just a weird thing, and uh, right. It will be interesting to see if if from in a starting capacity, but like. Uh, you know, he had an abbreviated start uh, yesterday, Sunday. He struck up five to six batters he faced then. It's just crazy. Right. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah, I think that, you know, one of the things that we don't measure very well is deception and delivery. I mean, you know, we're not really um, measuring release point as well as we could be. I mean, even though we have pitch effects release point data, we're not necessarily measuring kind of that Chris Young idea of, you know, when he was, uh, you know, 6'10", so he was releasing the ball. 12 feet from home plate or whatever it is, and Chris Young pitched way better than stuff should have had. And Chris Young was kind of more, he was a lot of fastballs. Um, Young didn't have a changeup, but he was a lot of fastballs and a lot of 88 to 89 mile an hour fastballs, way more successful than you would have thought with that profile uh, because of 
most likely the, the deception and the length and the, the release point. Um, Sungrani is not 6'10", so, but I do think that there are examples of, of guys um, who are significantly better than their stuff might indicate uh, because of deception, and this is just one thing that we don't predict that well as, as analysts. Right. Okay. Well, now look at Cameron. Uh, uh, you are free uh, for another week. You have done what you needed what you needed to do, and and now uh, and it's it's been a job well done, I should add. Thank you. I think you uh, you were especially good yourself this week. I will actually end with a compliment. Oh wow, wow, that's shocking. Uh, do we? Uh, now, we've used a lot of the percentages in terms of discussing how much baseball you've analyzed. Uh, yeah. Do you, I mean how do you feel like you did this week in, in terms of uh, I don't know? You could express it in something that's not related to percentages too. Uh, so I'm going with like an integer now or something. Uh, I don't know. The, the, the self-reflective, uh, immediate analysis feels uh, like you know. I, I don't know. I feel like I need to digest my performance, and maybe maybe uh, we should go, start going the other way, where maybe you should be the critique uh, oh. and, and offer you know maybe in the, in the spirit of the the late Roger Ebert, a thumbs up or a thumbs down to my performances every week. Oh uh, yeah, I'll give you a thumbs up this week. I'll give you a thumbs up. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Well, I look forward to the time when you give me a thumbs down and then we discuss your pay cut. Oh, yeah. There's that, too. <laughs> there's that. Yeah, there's that, too. Uh, we'll, th- we'll say thumbs up for this week, definitely. Uh, yeah, because I, I got to got taxes to pay. So we'll, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get it the next week. All right. Uh, yeah. So that is. Uh, so, yeah, we thank you. We thank you, Dave Cameron. That's been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. Uh, I'm Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. When it's twilight in Boston That's something I know about Cause I've spent many walks Lonely walks in the twilight All through Boston and those suburbs Right now I'm imagining the public gardens The public gardens by where the swan boats are And by the entrance that goes up to Beacon Street up Beacon Street through the back bay there few clouds heading for Kenmore Square when it's twilight in Boston Taking a left, going by the Fenway, by the Marshland Park. The little memorial by the Victory Gardens. One of my favorite parts of town. Those little plots of land. And it's getting darker. Mosquitoes are coming out now. Headed for the riverway 
Headed for the Jamaica way now. for adventure now. When it's twilight in Boston Twilight in Boston Tide for adventure 